This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about how the ways that trees are arranged in forests can influence how forest ecosystems function and what restoration can do to help forests recover. It's a good show. Stay with us. Scientists a lot of times forget about that. It's easy to get caught up in your own research and thinking about, like, here's my science, here's my science, here's my science. But a lot of times we forget to ask, you know, what science do you need? Is my science what you needed? If it's not, then I'm not so egotistical that I can't back off and say, I want, I want my science to be used, and so I'm going to make my science be driven by what your needs are as a manager. Today on Science Moab, we're talking with Dr. Andrew Sanchez-Mater. He is an assistant professor in the School of Forestry at Northern Arizona University and is part of the Ecological Restoration Institute. Dr. Sanchez-Mater studies the structure of forests and the services or functions that forests provide throughout time and across landscapes. He then applies what he learns to help land managers and restoration practitioners manage our southwestern forests. We begin our interview with Dr. Sanchez-Mater explaining how the structure and functions of forests change and why we should care about how forests are structured. In southwestern forest types, primarily things like pinyon juniper ecosystems or ponderosa pine ecosystems or maybe even mixed conifer ecosystems, there's, there's disturbances uh, that happen. Those disturbances usually are things like insect and disease outbreaks, uh, changes in climate, uh, disturbances like fire, or uh, maybe to some small degree earthquakes or geologic time type of disturbances. Uh, those disturbances uh, essentially are part of the ecosystem function. They Fire recycles nutrients, uh, it creates growing space for new trees or grasses to establish. Um, insect and disease uh, kind of um, thin out the population, selecting for individuals that are better suited or more resistant to them. So they provide some degree of function. Uh, that function works as part of a feedback loop with structure and composition. Uh, for instance, uh, you have a fire move through a forest, right? And so the forest is, let's say, it's a ponderous pine forest that's being invaded by uh, alligator juniper, right? So the alligator juniper and the ponderous pine are different species. They represent differences in composition. And let's say the ponderous pine are big and the alligator juniper are small trees, and so they represent differences in structure. So as fire's coming through and killing the alligator juniper, it's changing the structure and composition of the forest. Uh, historically, frequent fire in that system would have, would have regulated that structure and composition. So that process or that function is working in a feedback loop, and then that new structure and composition now changes understory fuels, flammability, all that type of stuff, which will f- alter function in the future. And so it's kind of describing how we think this, this structure, composition, function feedback loop works in a functioning ecosystem, one that's, one that's behaving the way it's 
it was meant to behave or it's evolved to behave over time, and then one that's now been degraded and it maybe is not functioning the way we want it to because that provides insights in terms of how we can restore those ecosystems and get them function naturally again. And so, and so you're starting to talk about degraded, and so when you're looking out into a forest, what would you call degraded? So I would call a forest that's degraded one that's, um, one that's structure, composition, and function are outside of their natural conditions. So uh, a ponderosa pine forest that historically would have had frequent low severity fires that's experiencing infrequent high severity fires would be a sign of degradation in that system. Uh, a mixed conifer forest, um, let's say that has southwestern white pine in it, which historically experienced endemic levels of insect and disease activity that's now experiencing epidemic levels of insect and disease activity would be another sign of degradation. So this, you know, a, a ponderosa pine forest or a PJ forest or any of them uh, that had a, that historically would have had a large grass understory component that kept soils in place, prevented large rain events from causing erosion that's now experiencing that would be another sign of degradation. So kind of these different lines of evidence to suggest that the forest is not behaving or is not um, experiencing or responding to disturbances the way it evolved to do would indicate that it's, that it's degraded. You're throwing around terms like natural and historic and sure. I'm wondering what are you using to define what is what is the historic forest? So history is an interesting thing because people, we as humans, perceive it differently. So uh, typically, from a restoration standpoint, we use reference conditions to describe uh, kind of a baseline to compare existing conditions to to decide if it's degraded or not. And those reference conditions can come from a magnitude of evidence lines. Things like so things like pack rat midden caches. You know, they provide you some information about what species are there and what species were there because the pack rats will tuck those away. Uh, things like historical photographs, early settler photographs, they provide us some great insights into what the conditions look like when we were there. A lot of my work revolves around a direct line of evidence, which has to do with dendrochronological reconstructions. So taking dendro, trees, chronology, time, and using the tree rings to actually look backwards in time to see what the structure and the composition would have been historically. And then we can basically, we can reconstruct what the forest looked like in the past. And if we, if we reconstruct the forest prior to to that disturbance being removed, and we do that across a large spatial extent across the region and different forest types, and, a, and across a, a large temporal extent, uh, we basically can develop these things we call reference conditions. And then when we aggregate those together and we look at how they varied over space and time, we typically refer that to refer to that as the historical range of variability, or when an ecosystem is functioning, kind of what are the upper and lower bounds that it would fluctuate between over a naturally functioning evolutionary trajectory? And so we use those, that all those lines of information, preferably all of them together, none of them by themselves, to get an idea of what the ecosystem was like so that now we can start evaluating what it's like today. We have something to, to, to compare it to. So... Let me explain this back to you to see if I'm understanding. Okay. With the tree rings, sure. you're trying to understand how a forest is structured, but you're just looking at the actual rings of the trees that are there. So what information are you getting from those rings? You're understanding 
how old the tree is. Sure. So sometimes just their size can tell us something. Sometimes the size doesn't work very well, and so we have to go in and look at the rings to say, was this tree there or not? And, and that'll give us some information about composition. So if we, if we look at all of the trees out there today, and it's a mix of, of say, like seven species, but when we go in and look at the tree rings and we age those trees and we find out that only the ones that were alive prior to fire exclusion, you know, the removal of that disturbance, they're all ponderous of pine because their tree rings say that they were there. That's telling us both something about structure, how big those trees were, and composition. It shifted from ponderous of pine to multiple species. So we, we use that information to tell us like presence, absence of species, and we use that information about those species that were present to tell us about what size they were or the structure. Unfortunately, it's really hard to get at function using these methods because, um, well, just because you don't have a functioning ecosystem that you can go back to and look at. So a lot of times we have to infer uh, function from the structure and composition. So you're saying we don't really have forest reference conditions that haven't had fire suppression to understand what function was like prior? Yeah, so like a contemporary analog uh, or a contemporary version of a functioning ecosystem. They're rare. Uh, most systems have one or two. Uh, by most systems I mean like an ecosystem on the planet may have one or two functioning non-degraded ecosystems. Uh, in, the, in the case of ponderosa pine, the only known one is Powell Plateau within the Grand Canyon. It's the only functioning ponderosa pine ecosystem that we, that we know of that has not had fire removed, that has not had intensive harvesting or uh, high-grade logging occur on it. Uh, it's had very minimal amounts of grazing, but it's not, it's not completely pristine and functioning because uh, it's got cheatgrass on it. Uh, it's, it's had some fire. It, the fire hasn't been as frequent as it would have been historically. Uh, it has recreational visitation, albeit rare. Uh, so we tend to refer to those as relic sites. They represent a relic of the past, uh, but they're, they're rare. They're hard to come by, and you have to be careful uh, because the, the thing that made them exist today is actually also something that makes them not representative of the rest of the forest today. And so you practice restoration also. Mm -hmm. I'm interested if, if we are trying to restore back to the conditions that exist on the Powell Plateau or if the ideas behind restoration ecology are moving in a different direction than trying to restore to a, a specific reference condition that doesn't really exist anywhere anymore. Yeah, well, so Society of Ecological Restoration, the professional society for restoration, defines restoration as the assistance of the recovery of an ecosystem that's been damaged, degraded, or destroyed. So it's a really simple definition. Uh, and because of that, the practice of restoration will differ everywhere. Um, when, you, when you tack on top of this, these needs for functioning ecosystems, uh, current issues like climate change, uh, that will make it where maybe the conditions that existed prior to degradation can never exist again, or maybe they're going to have a hard time. Uh, but here in the Southwest, for instance, uh, most of the projected climate change is in line with the historical functioning ecosystem conditions that we think were there. So frequent fire, species that are adapted to drought and insect and disease. So in the Southwest, um, the reference conditions or the HRV or the restored conditions just happen to be in line with what we want as people, but also what will give us the most resilience with projected climate change, the most uh, hedging our bets 
restoration will probably mean that our forests will stay forest and that our the forest won't be converted to something else. In other areas, maybe where projected historically it was warm and dry, but projected future condition is going to be something warm and wet. Uh, then maybe those are moving to a different condition and your definition of restoration would revolve around creating ecosystems uh, or restoring ecosystems that can function, that can provide ecosystem services, that can provide all the things that we as humans uh, typically want to get from those ecosystems. I see what you're saying. So the it just so happens that in our southwestern system, the way things had evolved pre these big disturbances or lack of disturbances like lack of fire actually create the most resilient systems and they are in line with the trajectory of climate change. Mostly speaking. I mean, in some places it doesn't perfectly align and in those areas kind of your restoration objectives would need to be examined and evaluated uh, because basically we don't we don't plan to do the same thing on every single acre of the entire landscape. Just, you know, what makes the most sense. What does restoration look like in a forest? Well, it can look like a variety of things, uh, depending on what type of forest and, and what form of degradation has occurred. Uh, in the southwest, uh, for instance, let's say in pinyon juniper ecosystems, um, we have a lot of historical savannas, which would have been mainly grasslands with a few scattered trees that have had juniper species invade them in the absence of fire, and now they've become really dense forest, uh, maybe even woodlands or shrublands in some conditions. So in those ecosystems, restoration might be, uh, you know, going in and mechanically treating in order to remove a lot of those trees, and then putting fire back in on a really frequent, uh, really high frequency, so that grassland type of conditions can be maintained. And then with that, you basically have the structure and the composition of a grassland and therefore you'd have all the function of a grassland. Uh, versus say something like in um, the dry mixed conifer or the mixed conifer type, uh, which is kind of viewed as, as being a mosaic of warmer, more dry sites intermixed with cooler, more mesic sites and kind of a patchwork on the landscape. Well, historically, frequent fire would have moved through that system. It would have burned in the drier type at a low severity, it would have moved into the more mesic type and put itself out, and it would have done that over and over and over again. And only in the warmest, driest years within natural varying of climate change would that fire have crowned or moved into the mesic type and kind of created a, a patchwork of, of high severity. Whereas contemporarily today, it just starts and moves into it and burns the whole thing and we get, we get large-scale severity. So Because of overcrowding? Yeah, well because of changes in species composition, uh, increases in uh, fire intolerant species uh, like the true spruce and true fir species that have moved, uh, that have that have expanded into that mixed conifer range. Which would otherwise have been wiped out with more frequent fires. Yeah, it would have, would have been removed with more frequent fires. And, and then our early treatments, early harvesting and things like that targeted some of those fire tolerant species like pondersapine and dug fir. So kind of that one-two punch uh, changed the composition, and then something grew back, and that was more small trees, uh, most of which are fire intolerant species, and that changed that structure. And so that change in structure and composition over time has resulted in a change in function. And so now we don't see low severity, mixed severity fire regimes in mixed conifer. We just see high severity stand replacing fire regimes. And so then getting back, so you were talking about how you're restoring these mixed cons. 
Yeah, so the prescription or the, the, the restoration efforts in MixCon would be uh, where possible to reduce tree density and maybe try to change the structure uh, by removing small trees. Now the, the size kind of tends towards larger trees, so we'd want to change that structure to make them more fire tolerant and insect and disease tolerant. We'd want to change that composition too, so we'd want to favor uh, existing or recruiting fire tolerant species like Ponderosapine and Douglas fir, southwestern white pine, and maybe uh, remove or not favor true fir and true spruce species that would be less fire tolerant. Uh, and then also, you know, there's change in that structure and composition, but we also have to be willing to put fire back into that landscape uh, and, um, and use fire to maintain it. So we can change the structure and composition, but if we don't reintroduce the primary disturbance, that, that being fire in this system, uh, then, then there's no guarantee that we're going to get all of the functional benefits that we're looking for. And then ponderosa pine. How do you restore those kinds of systems? Well, luckily, ponderosa pine is a one single species system, so its its composition is not out of whack today. Just its structure and function. Um, and again, this is another example of how like every single ecosystem has a different restoration objectives. So in ponderosa pine, uh, frequent fire was the primary disturbance. It's now infrequent, but in order to get frequent fire back in it, we need to open it up. Uh, we need to remove a lot of those ladder fuels, the, the smaller trees that allow fire to progress from a surface fire into the canopy and create a crown fire. Uh, ideally, we would push the system to a more uh, multi-aged or uneven-aged type of structure. So historically, ponderosa pine um, would have been dominated by old trees. It's a long-lived species. It would have been dominated by old trees, but it would have had a, a mixture of multiple age cohorts within the stand, whereas today it's pretty much dominated by just trees that established in the past 100 years. So we don't have to mess with the composition as much as we have to mess or alter and restore the structure. And then again, once we reintroduce fire, uh, the idea is we start to benefit all of the functional gains in that system. And then you mentioned some other forms of degradation like soil erosion from systems. Are there active things that can be done in these southwestern forests to combat that or is it just getting the tree species structure and composition back in check that will help with the soil loss? The short answer is yes, but uh, there's a variety of things. There, There is opening up the forest, removing a lot of those trees, putting frequent fire back in there will result in uh, the biomass of that forest now shifting to be more grasses forbs and shrubs. Those grasses, forbs, and shrubs do a much better job of holding soil intact following rain events, following fire. They respond after fire really fast. And so kind of changing that, that structure and composition from no herbaceous understory dominated by trees to one that's dominated by an understory with a few trees uh, would result in uh, gains in snowpack retention and water, in, water infiltration, uh, reduction of erosion and, and soil runoff. Uh, it increases biodiversity, which would also increase you know, songbird frequency, wildflowers, orthopods, all that kind of comes with it. Uh, those are, largely speaking, those are going to be indirect restoration benefits from the act of changing the structure and function. There's other things that could be done uh, to restore that system uh, more directly, things like um, you know, seeding native seeds back in in order to get them established if they weren't there, uh, kind of 
using what I would consider to be more traditional um, rehabilitation type of approaches to restoration in order to directly intervene and ensure that it's not going to happen when when those indirect types of approaches aren't just going to get the job done. I'm interested in what first got you interested in the structures and compositions and functions of these forests. Um, well, so I moved out west from the south, from Mississippi specifically, and my master's work was a lot of longleaf pine work. And so longleaf pine is a is an actual fire-adapted species. You know, it's, it grows in a grass phase until it has a fire, which then allows it to bolt out of the grass phase. It has serotonous cones. Um, so cones that come out after fire. Yeah, exactly. And so the interesting thing is southwestern yellow pine, ponderosa pine, is called southwestern yellow pine because when they when the early settlers moved out west, they saw these new yellow pines that they thought were a lot like the southeastern yellow pines, and so that's what they named them. So for me... Are they at all alike? Uh, I mean, they're both pines. <laughs> <laughs> they're similar. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're resinous, and they're long-needled, and they're fire-adapted, so they're very similar. So making a transition from longleaf pine to ponderosa pine ecosystems was really easy. What really got me hooked, though, was getting out here and starting to read about how the structure and composition had changed, primarily how the spatial patterns in that structure and composition, the structure have changed. So, you know, historically people think about ponderosa pine not being a, a dense, uniform, evenly spaced forest, uh, kind of like we see out there today. It was more open and grass-like and park-like. Uh, trying to understand why the spatial patterns changed, specifically in structure, uh, became an interest of mine and, and kind of a primary research focus. Uh, and it's not too hard to believe that uh, we talked about structure and composition and function being inter interconnected and in a feedback loop. Uh, the spatial patterns of that structure, how trees are arranged, how the fuels are arranged, um, where things are, directly influence how a fire, fire burns, which then directly influences where things can be. And so spatial pattern process interactions became a primary focus of mine, and that's what I've been studying for the past decade. What first got you interested in trees? Um, I have no idea. I really don't. I, I went to school for graphic design first and changed majors. Uh, I think I was an avid backpacker, and just like most natural resource professionals thought I wanted a career outside. Uh, and then my master's consisted of simulating trees and how they grew, so I never actually went outside for that work. And uh, that really got me interested in, in the applications and the expansion of, of modeling techniques for, for looking at how these ecosystems change and primarily how forested ecosystems change. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? A lot of things. I really enjoy a lot of things about being a scientist. Primarily, uh, I enjoy the, um, the ability that it affords us to listen to managers who are trying to do the best thing that they can for the land and trying to help them wade their way through the science that exists, but also uh, using their feedback to identify areas where we don't know the answers and, and, and identify what the the cutting edge or the f front line um, for science is and then and then being able to go after that and provide them with some answers or or take a stab at being anticipatory of what the next thing is going to be um, because when it comes down to it they're the ones that are out there changing the forest they're the ones that are out there doing restoration uh, my job is just to try to give them 
the best information I can or help them find answers to things that nobody knows the answers to. That's awesome. It's all about being applied. It's the the feedback, the, the push-pull of science transfer, which is, I mean, that's, scientists a lot of times forget about that. It's easy to get caught up in your own research and thinking about, like, here's my science, here's my science, here's my science. But a lot of times we forget to ask, you know, what science do you need? Is my science what you needed? If it's not, then I'm not so egotistical that I can't back off and say, I want, I want my science to be used, and so I'm going to make my science be driven by what your needs are as a manager. That's really important. We're, yeah. we're really glad that you do that. Well, thanks. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for this interview. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. To listen again to Dr. Andrew Sanchez-Mater or hear any other past shows, you can visit kzmu.org or download them on iTunes or Stitcher. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Support comes from the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.